Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown. I'm your host, Paul, and today we're going to be talking about the capital F, Future of War. So be sure to stick around, this is going to be a good one. So what I wanted to talk about, really, the, the vehicle that, that has me thinking about this is, of course, the war in Ukraine. And one of the things that is so fascinating about it is that the Russians, in a lot of ways, seem to be fighting the wars of the past. It seems as though they are still fighting their Afghanistan war that ended in, in 89. They're still fighting the war in Chechnya that ended in the mid-90s, late-90s, I think 2000 maybe. Uh, right? They, they are very, very firmly in the their own past, right? They're, they're using tactics that are antiquated by 20 years. And it's a very curious process, very curious decisions that I think has a lot of people scratching their heads. Um, but the, sort of to zoom out a little bit, one of the biggest questions facing modern militaries is what the future of war looks like. And here's why, is because you have to fight, right, a military that's actively at war has to fight the war that they're in. Right? You can't get to the you can't get to the next war unless you win the one you're in. But if you're a peacetime military, your biggest question is how do I get ready to fight a hypothetical future conflict? You always have to be ready for that conflict, and if it's not in the present, it's in your future. So how do you go about it? Right? Well, you have to make your best guess about what that future conflict looks like. And the reason that is, because let's say that conflict is 10 years down the road. Well, the generals of that conflict are majors or captains today, right? They're in their junior years of their career. And your future senior NCOs, your best trainers, they're going to be junior sergeants today. So you have to start preparing these junior sergeants, these young captains, right, for to be leading a conflict in the future. And it may not look like the conflicts of the present, and it definitely won't look like the conflicts of the past. So how then do you prepare them? And you give them the tools, right? As a person, there's, as the generals in an army at the, of the present, you have to start the process of giving them the tools, the weapons, the tactics they need to thrive in this war of the future. Because what you don't want to do is what's happening to Russia. Right, you can see that they have rolled in with tactics that really don't look like they've been updated since about 19, the mid 1980s, and their units are basically trying to stick the round peg of large-scale armor advanced, armor operations into the round hole. Sorry, the square peg of armored brigade and uh, division-level combat into the round hole of modern warfare right of warfare in 2022 and you can see they are killing they, their lack of preparation their lack of in foresight into the what the war of 2022 would look like is killing a lot of young conscripts today and right maybe if they had had a better assessment of what the war would look like they would either be better prepared or at the very least might have been able to convince their leadership that this war would not have been the productive uh, enterprise that they thought it would have been 
right? Because clearly these sort of brutal wars tend to happen when someone miscalculates badly. Usually one side thinks there's going to be a relatively clean win, um, and when there isn't, they realize just how badly they've made a mistake. And when we talk about the future of war, what I think is also worth noting is that not all wars are created equal, right? There's going to always be conflicts in the world, and the scale of these conflicts is really important to understand geopolitically. So, yes, there absolutely are many conflicts going on presently. A good example would be the conflict in Yemen, right? A, a humanitarian disaster, uh, a true awful civil war. Uh, but its scale is relatively small. Yemen is a small country, has a comparatively small population. Um, and so, for example, I think last year something like 47 children were killed in this war in Yemen. So while one civilian casualty is, is a tragedy, uh, it's important to understand that 47 civilian deaths uh, is seems to be what this conflict in Ukraine is generating in a matter of, of usually every couple of days. And so we have to bear in mind that, right, you're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of military forces in Yemen. In Ukraine, you're talking about hundreds of thousands. So you're 10xing the number of armed combatants um, or more. And there's, of course, another level to this, right? And this is what's sometimes called great power conflict. Uh, but in a better way to think of it is mobilizable militaries, right? Not all militaries are also created equal. And what I mean by that is that there is a bright line in the way militaries can operate, right? If you, you know, every country has a military, right? Uh, uh, Antigua has a military, but could Antigua deploy even a hundred of its troops to, uh, pick your country to Yemen? if they wanted to try to help out. Well, not without a ton of assistance, right? To supply even 100 troops, you need hundreds of pounds of food per month. Uh, you need gallons and gallons of water. You need ammunition. You need the ability to establish an airfield to bring in your aircraft. You need aircraft. You need maintainers for those aircraft. You need pilots, and not just one or two. You need enough pilots to fly nonstop right? You need to always have food and fuel coming in every day, every week, every month. And you see how complex this can quickly get. You need to be able to tr medically treat wounded troops. You need to be able to evacuate wounded troops back to the rear and bring in fresh troops to plus your unit up. And this is just for a hundred troops. Imagine the scale of problems at a thousand which even a thousand is relatively small. Imagine the problems and logistical complexity of a hundred thousand troops, right? And I bring this up because the vast majority of countries cannot sustain operations in a country that isn't contiguous, isn't connected, isn't next to it, um, for very long or at all, right? Without assistance. And that's true of the vast majority of countries in the world. Uh, Germany is an example, right? Germany relies a lot on not on basically the U.S. to get their troops overseas and elsewhere. Most U.N. peacekeeping operations, you may notice, involve sometimes dozens of countries all working together because you need to draw from dozens of countries to provide even a basic capacity for war fighting or peacekeeping operations, 
But there are some countries that are over the line that can have their militaries without anyone else's assistance deploy, fight, sustain, and redeploy overseas in a non-contiguous country. And those are basically uh, the United States, first and foremost, the UK, France, uh, Russia, and to a lesser extent, China. That's pretty much it. The other militaries can't or can't for one reason or another. And so there's there may be some exceptions for small numbers of units, but if you were talking about a thousand troops or like an armored combat brigade, uh or brigade combat team, I guess in US parlance, you're you're talking about five. Maybe maybe there's probably an argument for another five or so um that could be made but that's about it and it's important to recognize that no one knows what it would be like if one of those five fought each other nobody because it's so very different these are high-tech militaries allegedly right with a proper professional officer class modern equipment and one of the things that again shocks observers about russia is that they aren't doing what we expected of a first world military that has this deployability this deployment capabilities and one of the reasons is not because their military isn't sufficiently funded or isn't sufficiently uh, equipped it's that it appears as though again at first glance as someone from the outside it appears as though the russian generals did not accurately predict what warfare would be like in 2022. Instead, they are fighting as though warfare in 2022 would be fundamentally the same as warfare in 1993 in Chechnya, as warfare would be in 1987 in Afghanistan. And that is to say, brigade-level maneuver, giant armored columns, low levels of training among the average soldier, low levels of uh, discipline required among the average soldier, uh, very, very little power or independent decision-making expected of junior officers, uh, simply executing drills and enforcing discipline, not much more than that, and that all the thinking was done at the brigade and general, you know, the colonel and general level. And Ukraine, in contrast, I think is closer or embodying more aspects of modern warfare uh, for a couple of reasons, right? You notice that they their military has been in continuous combat in the Donbas region and some of the other separatist regions since for basically eight straight years. And that is going to change the way you fight. You're going to evolve. They also have the advantage of having very publicly rejected a Soviet style of system. So there are a lot of reformers in their civilian leadership. And when you have reformers and independent elections, right, opposition parties coming in, it means that there's opportunities for reassessment, for refreshes. It means that there's a uh, mechanism through which doing things differently isn't seen as a affront to the past or a disrespect of your legacy. It's seen as a natural move. And when you have opposition competitive democracies, you're more likely to get that, especially somewhere like Ukraine, where the young people of their country 
uh, have a really different orientation towards everything than their more Soviet or uh, East, I'm going to call it Eastern Bloc sort of mentality of maybe two generations ago. They also have the advantage of having a lot of training from the United States, who, whose military themselves went deep into, uh, it did some real serious evolving over 20 years in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. And those changes, while obviously they're going to have their Ukrainian spin on it because of Ukrainian military culture, Ukrainian culture, and the specific war they are fighting, you still have this fact that new ideas are being pushed into this military, right? Whereas in Russia, there wasn't a lot of independent third-party um, thinking about how things are done. It was a lot of old Russian generals uh, patting each other on the back, saying how things were done well. This is the authoritarian system. It's the groupthink that we sometimes talk about, where there's not new, fresh ideas being deployed and being experimented with. And so all this to say, the Ukrainians seem like they are closer to what the future of war looks like than the Russians, who are stuck firmly in the past. And what are some of the aspects that I think the future of war entails? Uh, so... <laughs> What it doesn't entail is gigantic 100-plus vehicle armored columns rumbling down narrow roads. That seems to be well on its way out. What I think is, though, is first, small units. Uh, small unit tactics are seem like they are the future. The U.S. learned this in Iraq and Afghanistan, as did the insurgents, right? Because of powerful weapons like... Uh, cruise missiles, right, long-range mortars, drone strikes, all of that meant that the, uh, all of that meant that you couldn't have concentrations of forces, right? Almost, at, uh, for almost 10 years, the Taliban virtually never put 300 fighters in one place. That's the U.S. equivalent of a company, right? They would almost always fight in groups of three to five most often, sometimes even less than that. Sometimes just a two-man team planting a, an IED, right? Similarly, you saw with the Iraq insurgents, they would be in small teams that would max out at about 20. And the reason I say this is because the U.S. came to the same conclusion. Their fighting unit was about 16 for most of these conflicts, right? Occasionally, you would have two or three of these 16-person groups sort of come under the same... Um, umbrella for command purposes but even then they would be operations over a huge area uh where they may not even see the other 16 to 16 to 30 member uh units that were part of an operation and so and so i think small units are the future the problem with small units fighting is that that means you have to have junior officers making independent decisions you have to give a you have junior ncos making independent decisions and these are this is a hard level of trust for a general to have because it means that you basically own you have to think of your junior officers as like and junior ncos as like wind-up dolls right they you do not get to dictate them once you let them go but what you can do is wind them up. You can provide them with guidance, with intelligence, with good quality training, and as much insight as you possibly can, 
right, about the situation, about the mission, about what you need them to do. But then you have to be able to put them on the on the battlefield and let them go and let them kind of buzz around and fight their fight, right? Because things, the reason is because things change too fast for a general to make all the decisions for six subordinate units, for 10 subordinate units, for 50 subordinate units. They can't do it. And so the best you can do is, again, wind them up, put them down, let them go, right? That's the only way. Things are too fast in the modern era, right? We live, we've, we've fight in news, news cycle timelines. You know, we're talking about days, weeks, hours, conditions change, and you need the only people who can respond to that is our junior level leaders. And Ukraine, you've seen it in the videos. We've seen a lot of videos, and I don't think I've ever seen you more than about twenty Ukrainian soldiers as a, a part of any individual maneuver element. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that is the fighting element of Ukrainian forces. And I think that is how they fight. Whereas Russians, I've rarely seen a group of less than, you know, a column of, of less than, you know, dozens of vehicles, right? Dozens of vehicles are hundreds of soldiers. And I think that is endemic of kind of the Russian way of war, that they're still clinging to this warfare of the past not always there's been some but usually these are russian special troops of some sort right these is that authority to do those things are are reserved for russia's best troops but in fact they have to be the default at least in the warfare of the future the other facet i think is what we sometimes call what we used to call cyber warfare and that was traditionally thought of as like you know computer hacker uh, taking down their satellites, right? Some golden eye level stuff. Uh, I don't think cyber warfare looks like that. I think what cyber warfare looks like is more akin to super propaganda. And I think this is the difference between Zelensky and Putin, right? Zelensky, and we've, we've talked about this elsewhere, Zelensky, one of his most brilliant moves is recognizing what he is the best in the world at. And in terms of being a world leader, he is the best at playing to an audience, right? He knows how to connect with an audience. And has he done it? I mean, look, the guy went viral, has gone viral multiple times, right? For his like impassioned press conferences, his messages to the world, he's talking directly to people. And he understands, and it, by people, I mean the larger public of the West. Uh, he's talking to, of course, Ukrainians. Um, he's talking to his uh, soldiers, right? The soldiers um, under his command, essentially. And that is what it makes him so effective is that you've seen what mass mobilization can do if you can mobilize people to your cause right you can enact incredible incredible effects and that is one of the things that they've done really well right look at how much more combat footage of ukrainian troops acquitting themselves well right? Achieving victories, uh, beating Russians, destroying tanks. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense releases it and releases it in English language often, uh, making it very easy to get and distribute. 
uh, and they're very, very uh, watchable videos, right? There's I've done one breakdown already on one of them. I think I'll have another breakdown coming up shortly. But these are very, very, very much worth watching, right? They're fascinating um, in sort of a morbid sense. Uh, Russia, in contrast, is in a closed information system in which dissent is... Uh, squashed. Uh, you see the videos of protesters being arrested. Uh, Putin has very little input. He has a extremely staged public presence, right? Uh, he makes almost no effort to connect with regular people. He basically is connecting only in so much as he's trying to counter narrative uh, the Ukraine and the Western media, right? There's, there's not a ton of uh, there's almost no non-Russian language uh, narrative pushes, right? There's a little bit of RT America, um, but but they're shamelessly a Russian government outlet, right? Uh, so he's he he is his information operations, his cyber war, uh, his meme warfare, as as Hideo Kojima would probably call it. Uh, his meme warfare game is weak, like super weak, um, comically weak, in fact. Uh, he's boring. He's uninteresting. He he looks he just he looks out of touch. Um, his messaging, his efforts to message are are so transparent, uh, so easily seen through. Whereas m most of the people that consume uh, the stuff out of Ukraine being put out by Ukraine's government, they may not even realize that it's propaganda. In the way that you may not realize that a viral video being pushed um, can be both viral in its own right and fascinating to watch and also serve a propaganda or a narrative purpose about shaping your view of the world. And Zelensky and Ukraine have this in spades and they deserve immense credit for it because they're doing it to defend their country. And again, if there wasn't the tremendous public outcry, would you have... Western nations as up in arms about this as they are. Maybe, maybe not. But what you definitely wouldn't have is corporations who are looking to achieve, you know, good press, good PR victories. They would definitely not be taking action if the general public wasn't going to be outraged by this. So I think the other aspect of the future of warfare is going to be the blurring line between civilian and military. And I say this for a couple of reasons. First, we see that the Ukrainian armed forces have very rapidly mobilized all military age males in defense of the country. Uh, large numbers of civilians, you've seen viral videos of civilians, for example, assembling Molotov cocktails, um, using their cars to barricade their streets. You've seen farmers who are absolutely non-combatants, unarmed farmers, towing away Russian military vehicles that are abandoned for one reason or another. And all of this is an indicator to me uh, that that the civilian and military distinction is still getting extremely blurred. Um, you look at the number of foreign volunteers that Zelensky has solicited, right? Those are people who are civilians who are going to be armed and become members of the Ukraine military. And in contrast, you have Russia making the same claims, asking for additional troops to fight in Ukraine. Uh, civilians, again, that they plan to arm and equip. And so I think this idea of uniformed warfare 
uh, the classic law of war with the blue uniforms sh- marching against the red uniformed people. Th- those days are probably very near dead and buried. Obviously, there are still uniformed troops, but on both sides, there is a mass of semi-regular troops. And we see this again in Iraq and Afghanistan, even in Vietnam. The civilianized or the part-time fighter uh, was a... A, just an expectation. The vast majority of the Taliban's forces were part-time fighters who would farm and in seasons uh, after the harvest would go pick up arms and fight, right? Sometimes to supplement their income, sometimes just to fulfill an ideological obligation. But the point is that these civilians transitioned pretty seamlessly from civilian to combatant. And so I think that's only going to grow in the future of warfare. Look at how many civilian drones are watching some of these military operations in Ukraine. And if you think that those drone operators aren't feeding their data back to the Ukrainian military in some way, shape, or form, uh, you've got another thing coming. They're probably the ones flying the drones, honestly. They're probably flying it at behest of the Ukrainian military. And so I think those are all some of the things that you're going to see in this future of warfare. Um, I think it's going to be much, much more about the public, hearts and minds, about mass mobilization, both of militaries, but more importantly, it's going to be about winning the propaganda war. It's going to be about winning influence. This is why every company.com government is trying to get into the metaverse. This is why you can meme your uh, your elected politicians rely on even simpler, more preposterous memes and slogans. Uh, All of this is because influence is the new commodity of the world. If you can influence the way people think about something, then you can gain tactical, military, and strategic advantages. This is, I think, fundamentally why so much, many aspects of the U.S. government view TikTok as a threat, is because it can massively influence the way people view the world, and if you can, if you can control the inputs of data, you can shift people's worldviews. And it's concerning, because it may not necessarily be true, or it may be true in the same way that you only see videos of Ukrainians beating Russians, but the data are clear that this is a stalemate at best. So for every viral video of Ukrainian military forces blowing up a Russian tank, there's probably a Russian tank hitting Ukrainian military positions to brutal effect. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for joining me on this episode. Um, If you want additional content, you want to check out Patreon. Uh, uh, thanks to our lieutenant tier patrons, Cole Foster, Command Unit, Caffeinated, Jakob Flavius, Chris, Dr. Shadowcop, Portal World, Time, Brandon Armitage, Telruin, and Astro Hunter. You guys are what make this possible. All right, guys. Uh, also, if you're on Spotify and you're a fan, man, help Spotify push this a little harder by giving me that five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Be sure to comment and like on the video. Again, uh, tell the algorithm that the people that listen to this enjoy it. It really, really makes a difference and it really helps me reach more people with what I think is pretty informative content. All right, guys, thanks so much and I'll see you in the next one.